The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Apple CEO Tim Cook and President Donald Trump find common ground in Texas. But Andrew and Joe, not so much. They're you so were on the uh, opposite side. You were saying no. I'm not just really. Two weeks ago, you were saying I'm not on either side. I'm a social commentator. Thirty-five days left in the 2019 shopping season, and Target CEO Brian Cornell has a feeling we're all on the nice list. All the indicators right now would say this is going to be a very solid holiday season. Stanford's medical dean is betting on tech to cure a lot of healthcare's problems. Behavior is the hardest thing to change. I do think technology has a role, and I think we're seeing the effects of technology. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Wednesday, November 20th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Andrew by in three, two, one, two, Andrew. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan. Becky Quick is going to be joining us in just a little bit. The first story on today's podcast, the counterintuitive relationship between Apple CEO Tim Cook and President Donald Trump. President Trump is heading uh, to Texas today to meet with Apple CEO Tim Cook at a facility that's slated to assemble the MacBook Pro. In September, Apple won a tariff exemption from the Trump administration and announced it would start building a redesigned Mac Pro using more parts that are sourced in the U.S. than with the previous versions. President Trump's expected to use today's event to promote his efforts to convince companies to add more U.S. manufacturing jobs. As for Cook, uh, the tour may highlight a strong relationship with the president as he seeks further relief uh, from tariffs on Chinese imports. This, I have to say, it's so the relationship between Tim Cook it, it's fascinating and the president to, is so to, fascinating because it is to, they come at the not world, to everyone. Well, no, because they come at the world from completely different sides uh, in terms of some of their own politics. That's clear. We know that, and yet, um, and and yet, the, Tim Cook has somehow managed to ingratiate himself with the president at great way, peril. At potentially great peril, but he's managed to do it just thus to far the, at great peril to the woke social media with, crowd. Well, not just the woke social media crowd, but to certain customers, to empl- his employee base. He somehow managed this. He's he's walked a fine Don't line. He's, say, uh, he's threaded the needle in see, some I, kind of remarkable way. If it's, I know that shareholder value is not in vogue anymore. But if you're a, uh, an Apple shareholder or right. an employee or a customer, you, I think, you, if it benefits the company, whether it's less tariffs or currying favor with, with people in high places or whatever it is, if it, you know, I think you, think that's the, I think you can put you, the people, I mean, on your, people on your side are so quick to, to, to park their woke sensibilities hold, when it benefits on, them. For example, just, the NBA. Just two they're weeks so, ago on the NBA, you yeah, were, they're you were so, on the opposite uh, side. You were saying, no, I'm not just really, two weeks ago you were saying, I'm not players. on either side. I'm a social 
commentator. And I'm just saying that people park their woke sensibilities wherever, wherever they, they need to go based on their what own I'm personal. What surprised to buy is that actually the Apple employees and some of the customer base is not He's actually. the president, Andrew. I mean, I'm just saying. Not everybody is part of the resistance where they, they, they won't accept I the agree. 2016 election. Joe, I, I mean, there are some people, if you walk in and, you're, and you say anything about Trump, you might get thrown out of the place. I mean, that's not normal. We're, we're in strange times here. I'm just here. saying that... Uh, just as the impeachment hearings will be taking place, as Tim Cook will be, you know, side by side, hand in hand with the president, I think that's actually a remarkable thing. I want to go over to Eamon Javers, who joins us with a preview. Eamon. Yeah, good morning, Andrew. Huge stakes here in Austin, Texas today as the president travels here. He's going to visit a facility where they build those MacBook Pro computers. Apple announcing that in September they were going to expand production here in the United States because they were able to get some tariff exclusions. Now, the question is, is there going to be visible tension between these two men? The expectation is that both will be at their most diplomatic, but there has been some tension between them in the past. The president, very critical of Apple during the campaign. Uh, Tim Cook uh, hosted a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Today, though, both sides are going to try to do some persuasion. The president is going to be persuading the American public that his tariffs are working. That is, American companies like Apple are bringing at least some production back into the United States. Tim Cook is going to be trying to persuade the president not to hurt Apple with a December 15th round of tariff increases, trying to find a way for Apple to get additional exclusions and protect so much of its manufacturing. Now, if you look at uh, the MacBook Pro overall, it's an expensive product, uh, but it's not a major seller in terms of overall revenue. Mac products globally are pale in comparison to iPhone sales, which are a much, much bigger sales figure annually for Apple, according to their Q4 report. So what you're looking at here is MacBook Pro being a relatively small piece of Apple's overall production. But Tim Cook has to focus on protecting that big number here, and that's the number that could be impacted by that December 15th tariff increase, guys. So a lot to watch for here in Austin, Texas, throughout the day today. Eamon, a couple of questions in terms of this. Uh, it's a little bit of a strange bedfellow situation that's, uh, uh, taking place there in Austin. That's right. Um, who wanted to do this? Meaning, was this instigated by Tim Cook and Apple, or was this instigated by the White House and President Trump in terms of this obviously being, uh, in large part, what seems like a photo op. Yeah, look, that's a really good question. We don't entirely know the answer to that. Neither side will comment. But just in, in terms of the, the body language and the communication between the two entities, the White House and Apple, all of the communication on this is coming from the White House, not from Apple. All the, our direction on what's going to happen today coming from the White House, not from Apple. I right. think the president has more to gain here right. than Tim Cook does. There's a lot and of look, risk in this for Tim there's Cook. Been a lot it's of one-on-one -on -one opportunity for Tim Cook. Right. There's been a lot of articles written over uh, the past six months about actually how Tim Cook has threaded this needle uh, with the president. He has yeah. devoted a lot more time than many other CEOs in America have talking to the president. Uh, to some extent, I imagine, trying to ingratiate Apple with the president, given uh, the possibility of tariffs on their products. Um, but what is seems so interesting to me is how he's uh, thread that needle at the same time that he's managed to placate what I imagine could be employees who have different political views than the president, uh, consumers that may have very different sure. views than the president, and how you think he's managed that. And, and, and therefore, what this meeting is about, I assume, is also part of some deal, because everything, to some degree, with the president is a deal. 
That's right. And I'm told that Tim Cook has managed that in large part by going through the Trump family, talking to Melania Trump at dinners uh, that are held at the White House, talking to Ivanka Trump, serving on uh, the president's jobs board uh, that's very important to the president. You remember, a lot of CEOs walked away from this president after his comments at Charlottesville. Now, here's Tim Cook showing up again and again. I asked the president what Tim Cook is doing differently, and the president told me, look, he's the only CEO who actually picks up the phone and calls me directly when he needs something. The president said Tim Cook has been very effective at making his case inside the White House why these tariffs shouldn't hurt Apple. Uh, but you're right, Tim Cook is a, a comes from a liberal Silicon Valley. He hosted a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton. These would not be the two men you would think of as bosom buddies, and yet here they are, both with a lot at stake. Historically, I've always thought CEOs would want to, you know, photo op with, with the president of the United States. I, you're, I think you're just very disappointed in Tim Cook that he's not more, that he hasn't really joined the resistance. You can't, it's a, such a valuable, great company and it does so no, well. No. And it's, it must be maddening to you that he consorts no, this with is, this. This is not about. He's normalizing, he's normalizing this guy, which is not this good. This is not about my view versus somebody else's okay. view. This is about the fact okay. that so all right, many all right, CEOs never mind. in America as as it, I know. decided okay. to distance themselves from the president in not, large not part. At that, at, at that point in time, many have come back. After Charlottesville, many have come back. Some to, have come back, know, some, some have not come back. Okay. Look, as you this, know, I'm an Apple fanboy. I love Apple. <laughs> I like Tim Cook enormously. I know, I know, and that's what makes it so painful for me to see you, to see you in pain. <laughs> It may be turnaround time for some recent IPOs. Uber and Lyft have uh, been struggling, of course, this year. But Mark Mahaney, uh, who is with us this morning at the table, sees some signs of profitability. And he joins us right now. He is the lead Internet analyst at RBC Capital Markets. We often uh, get to see him through the window in the box. But now you're here live, live and in person. Um, These are two stocks that have been battered, battered. And you now like them. We've had seven Internet IPOs this year. Six of them are, have broken issue, have traded below their IPO yep. price. All of them have underperformed the market year to date. Uh, if, if you believe in reversion to the mean, there's probably one or two in there that you want to buy on this kind of correction. And I think Uber and Lyft are two of those. Uh, they have both uh, listened to the market. The market has said, we want profits. Show us your path to profitability. They both, both brought up their uh, inflection points and when they're going to turn profitable. Uh, materially up to 2021. And uh, we think there's enough uh, levers that they can pull to do that. So, yes, we like the assets. The market opportunity hasn't changed. The companies have, we only had one or two quarters. They've, they've Is executed reasonably well. Is it a short-term opportunity well. insofar as if they get to profitability by 2021, they will have also uh, had to reduce the growth rate to get there? I don't think I mean, so. This is the ultimate balancing test here, right? I don't think so. Our, uh, our mutual friend, Mike Isaac, in his book, yep. Super Pumped, I thought what he highlighted there was just how inefficiently the company was run before. It was gunned for growth. So if you do that, that means somebody coming in who's a little bit more efficiency-oriented, like Dara Khashoggi, can come in, take out some of those excess spending uh, initiatives, and still manage the company for growth. No, I and I you know, look. The market opportunity is still um, as good as it was before, and you've got these two actors acting more rationally. What happened today in New York City? Juno, just uh, you know, the distant third right. ride-sharing service, just went out of business. The markets are consolid- uh, They're co- they're right. consolidating, and they're they're what about the regulatory risk. Yeah. That- Certain cities, states, yeah. municipalities, countries yeah. say, you know what, these drivers are employees. That's just what they are. I mean, you look at, you look at what they're trying to do in California yeah. and, and the approach that, and I was actually asking Dara about this a couple weeks ago at the Dilbo conference, this idea that the, the, way, the way the law 
is the whole thing was structured was effectively to deal with Uber and Lyft. And now Uber and Lyft are saying, actually, this doesn't apply to us because we're a platform. How can that be? Do you actually think they're going to win those cases? Uh, Out of my field, the the legal stuff, but absolutely some of their drivers should get benefits. Those who work with them, I don't know, 30 hours a week, and there are a good number of them. The truth behind these gig economy companies, however, is that the vast majority of their drivers aren't. But, you know, there's a way there should be some sort of compromise there in the, in the middle. How long it takes. Right. My guess is that this is like a year or two slog. Worse may be over for your think for Uber and Lyft. But I can go down that list. You can look at Slack, which everybody thought was an enterprise, you know, great enterprise company. I still think it's a great. I use it every single day. And yet it's off materially. You what are the other ones? You know, when you look at the rest of the, the bunch, are there others you touch or no? Yes, uh, one that's not this year, but uh, last year was Spotify. Right. I think that stock has gone way up, way down. It's right back at par. You didn't need to buy it and direct a listing. You could just buy it now at the exact same price. But I think some of these that reach those profitability inflection points, Snapchat's another one. Snapchat, Pinterest are both going to turn profitable, meaningfully profitable right. next year for the first time ever. Investors, there's a new group of investors that will come in at them because of that. And so, so which ones don't you touch? I said Slack, and I, you noticed, said Slack, I, I yes. noticed you did not uh, get I, behind that. Yes, no, I didn't, because I don't cover it, so that's you know, why. That's why. Is there anybody else that you would not touch, though, that you do cover right now? Uh, there's a good number of stocks that uh, we don't recommend and right. we're cautious on. Usually, though, it's ones that, even if they're profitable, have gone X growth. Uh, eBay comes to mind. Right. TripAdvisor comes to mind. Does this dynamic around these, these, um, these listings, these public listings, direct listings, Does this change the model for you? I mean, do you think that we've now seen what happened with Spotify? We saw what happened with Slack. We've seen what happens in an IPO. Do you think that there's any lesson from all of this that's going to change how investors approach IPOs? I don't think so. And by the way, I think there are very few companies that can pull off direct listings. You you have to be in a position where you don't need cash and you have a good enough brand name that you don't need it to educate investors. There are very few companies that can do that. Okay. We're going to leave it there, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Nice to see you. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, Becky's at one of New York City's Target locations with Brian Cornell, the retailer's chairman and CEO. I know we're winning footsteps. We're getting more footsteps into our stores and more clicks to our site. Talk about footsteps. That particular Target they're sitting in is one of the two best locations for makeup sales out of all Targets in the U.S. We're next door to a Sephora and we're across the street from Macy's. How does that work? That answer after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Becky sat down with Target CEO and Chairman Brian Cornell in New York's 34th Street Target store this morning. I'll try to set the scene for you in case you've never been. It's a smaller format store of two floors suited to its urban location. On the same block as Penn Station, across the street from Macy's, it has plenty of foot traffic, as you'll hear. Inside, surrounded by a vibrant display of winter puffer jackets on the main floor, Becky and Brian began their conversation. It was just moments after the retailer reported its quarterly earnings, and it was a strong report. While the two spoke in the immediate wake of the numbers, the stock hit an all-time high in pre-market trading. 
Here's Becky right inside the Herald Square entrance. So what do you think of these numbers? Oh, you're actually trading at $121 right now. Um, surprise you to see the street's reaction on this or kind of what you were anticipating? Well, it's certainly gratifying. I think the team has done such an exceptional job of you know, delivering really consistent results for really 10 quarters now. So it's a great day for the team. I think they've done an exceptional job of executing a strategy that we've had in place for several years. And I think we're rewarding shareholders. Um, in terms of the investments that you've put into this, uh, so much of it has been raising wages, uh, reinvesting in stores, building more stores out. But then I think the big deal also is what you've done with digital, mm -hmm. uh, your ability to now uh, ship to people same day in a lot of cases, allow people to pick up in the store or even pick up curbside. Um, when did you really believe that that's the way you had to go? And is this kind of proof of, the per proof of what you put through? Well, Becky, we focus a lot on bringing great inspiration to our guests when they shop our physical store or their online making it really easy and all those fulfillment options, you know, order online, pick up in store or drive into one of our parking lots, we'll put it in your trunk or have a ship shopper come to your home and then making sure we deliver great value. So when we get that balance between inspiration, ease and value, I think our guest is rewarding us both by shopping more in store and also online. What, what, what are you seeing right now in terms of the consumer? Uh, you're heading into the holiday shopping season. That's the most important quarter for any retailer. What do you see in the stores across the country? Yeah, I think we continue to see a very healthy consumer environment. Obviously, a very strong labor environment. Unemployment continues to be very low. You know, the percentage of consumers that are in the workforce continues to grow. Wages are rising. Consumer confidence is strong. And all the indicators right now would say this is going to be a very solid holiday season. You know, indications are somewhere between 3 and 4% growth for retail shopping in the holiday season. So we want to make sure we're there to take you know, market share during the holiday season and delight all the target guests who shop our stores and shop online. Where do you think you'll be stealing market share from? What, what competitors? Yeah, well, when you think about our business, you know, it's fairly unique because of this multi-category portfolio. So we've got a big apparel business. About 20% of our business is apparel. Apparel was up over 10% in the third quarter. So we're clearly delivering great value and quality in apparel, and we're seeing that rewarded by you know, more trips into our apparel department and more shopping online. We've got a big home business. Clearly, when it comes to holiday season, electronics and toys are a big part of our assortment. But so is beauty. Uh, that's one of our fastest-growing categories. Essentials are really important, and we're seeing a great reaction to our new brand, Good & Gather in Food & Beverage. So we have an opportunity to take market share in apparel and home, in toys and electronics, in essentials and beauty, and in food and beverage. And that's really kind of the magic of our business. But who are you stealing the market share from? Are these shoppers who used to be going to the malls, but now they're buying a lot more clothes here at Target? Well, it seems to be. Obviously, traffic was up. And while there's a lot of important factoids when you went through the, the report, traffic being up over 3% is one of the most important indicators for me. When I look at the health of our business, when we have traffic growing, I know we're winning footsteps we're getting more footsteps into our stores and more clicks to our site. And that's really the indicator of a healthy business for, for us. You have six fewer days, every retailer does, six Everyone fewer does. days between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas this year, which is usually a pretty uh, heavy hurdle to try and jump over just because you need days to get people in the stores. If you're going to have six fewer days, inevitably it's going to be a tougher comp. What, what do you do to try and fight that? Well, we've been planning for it all season, so it's not a surprise. We know it's going to be a very intense shopping season. Every day counts. So we've really made sure we're investing in our team. So 
$50 million of additional wages during the holiday season. We put a lot of time into training, 500,000 additional hours of training to make sure our teams are ready for the holiday season. We'll have twice as many team members working on same-day fulfillment. So we're really making sure that from a team standpoint, we're investing in that important asset. And our teams are ready. We'll be staffed in there and ready to deliver against the guest needs. You know, that, that, that's not cheap to get more people who are working, paying mm-hmm. them higher wages, making sure that you can deliver more things on same-day delivery. And yet, I think your margins must have improved pretty significantly, at least in the third quarter. And when, when you look at it, the revenue beat by a little bit by what the street was expecting, but earnings per share beat by a lot. What happened? Where are you seeing margin well, improvement? Well, you saw our operating income grow by over 20%. EPS was up 25%. And I think it's the balance between really strong top-line growth the margin mix in our business, a great growth rate in categories like apparel, strength in home, in beauty, but also you know, we're changing the way we fulfill. So unlike you know, many others, a big part of our fulfillment is that same day offering, where our stores are really at the center of how we fulfill our digital experience. So, Do you make money on that though? I mean, those economics, when it's delivered by our stores, when it's order online and pick up in a store, or it's drive up, those look a lot more like store economics. So we talked about this actually last year in March at our financial community event. When we go from shipping from a DC to fulfilling from our stores, distribution center yeah, to fulfilling in about your stores. 40% of the cost goes away. Huh. But when it's order online and pick up in store or drive up or fulfill by ship, about 90% of the cost goes away. So those economics look a lot like store economics. And we certainly like that, but importantly, so does our guest. Yeah. They like the convenience, the ease, the fact that they know they can order online and conveniently come by a Target store and we'll have it ready for them. Let's talk about store economics because we're sitting in a store on 34th Street yeah. in New York City. It's a one of store. 11 stores I believe you have right now. We've got quite a few now in New York. In New yes. York City. People thought that it was going to be impossible to bring a big discounter into New York City and still make it work from an economics perspective. You and I took a tour around just about a half an hour ago and looked at a lot of the things that are here. Shocked to see food downstairs and how much of the assortment that you can bring in. But how do you actually make the economics work here? Yeah. Well, one, there was great demand for the brand in a market like New York City. So we're sitting here in Herald Square. Um, thousands of people walk by the store every day. And when we opened up a couple of years ago, the demand was enormous. And for us, it's bringing the best of Target into a smaller format. So we've got to curate the best of our assortment, understand what the local neighborhood is looking for, but it's been really well received. And these are our most productive stores anywhere in America. The sales per square foot, really strong. And so you're paying higher rents, but you're making up for it much, because there's so much, much foot traffic that comes through. Absolutely. You pointed out that the makeup department yeah. downstairs advise it's number one or number two, depending on the day, in terms of the makeup in the, sales in for the entire, the entire United States for yeah. your sales. We're next door to a Sephora, and we're across the street from Macy's. How does that work? Well, again, it gets back to the inspiration, the experience we're providing, the guests who shops the store, great value, great assortment. It's the brands they're looking for. but. We've got great service. We're investing in our team here. It's a great experience when you walk in, but we pay it off with amazing value. You guys have a lot of national brands. We saw Godiva downstairs. We saw a lot of the national brands that you are offering here. There's been speculation that with Nike stepping away from Amazon, you all might be able to be a great retailer, a place for them to be. Have you had any conversations with Nike about selling Nike products here? Well, I mean, we're always talking to great national brands. I mean, we just recently announced an extended partnership with Disney, Mm -hmm. where we put 25 Disney stores inside of a Target, and next year we'll add probably 40 more. 
So you know, we've always had great branded partnerships. Starbucks is in most of our locations. We've got a great partnership with CVS. People like Disney. We've added Levi's to our collection. So we're very selective. But you know, we have great national brand partnerships that complement our own brands each and every day. So is that a yes or no on Nike? We'll see. <laughs> in other words, you're not going to tell me just yet, right? Well, probably won't tell you today. Okay. But again, we're always looking for great partnerships. And we know our guests love great national brands. So it's that balance between great own brands, uh, brands like Universal Thread, uh, what we do with A New Day, Goodfellow for Men's, and what we're doing with national brands like Levi's and other great partnerships that we'll continue to build. Brian, you see numbers like this with your margins improving and people are going to say, wait a second, I thought you had a lot of goods that were, were tariffed because you've got to do some sourcing out of China. How, how do you handle the tariffs? What kind of impact has it had? Well, we talked about this before, Becky. Our team's been working for years now uh, to make sure that we have a very sophisticated vendor matrix, that we have options to offset some of these challenges. And this is really a tribute to the work our merchants have done, our sourcing teams to make sure you know, we can balance some of the tariff pressures and still deliver great value for our guests. How, how much of your merchandise is sourced from China? I mean, it's a significant portion, but we've Greater also than 25% yeah, less than, but we've also yeah. diversified you know, where we source. So we've got you know, a very diversified sourcing matrix. Um, we've made sure that we've worked with our vendors to try to offset some of those costs. But right now, we feel like we're well prepared to, to manage this you know, tariff challenge as we go into the fourth quarter. What, what, what do you watch in, in terms of Washington signals? The mar market's yeah. watching every day. Although I have to say, the moves we see in the Dow based on the headlines it seem to be smaller and smaller every yeah. time. How, do, how, how closely are you guys watching it? How do you kind of prepare? We watch it every hour of every day. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, it's been moving each and every day. There's different headlines. Um, we're trying to make sure we're staying on top of that. But you know, right now, we're focused on executing our holiday plans. And uh, we've got to make sure we're, we're looking into the horizon for what's going to happen in 2020. But we feel like we've got great plans in place for the holiday. Um, the guest is rewarding us with more traffic and more visits to our site. Um, our teams have done a great job in preparation for the holiday season. Um, and we think we're ready to win. Brian, you say that wages are strong in America. Is that a good thing from your perspective because it means people have more money to spend in your stores? Or is it a, a difficult thing for you because you've got to pay workers yeah. more to be here? I think it's a great thing. Um, I think this healthy consumer environment where people are seeing wages rising. You know, we made a decision several years ago to go to a starting minimum wage of $15 by 2020. We're attracting great talent. We want to be a preferred place to work. Uh, we want to be a destination in retail. So it's allowing us to attract and retain great talent. And I continue to think the best investment we've made is our investment in our team. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for joining us. Obviously, those investments are paying off today. Thanks for joining us here at Target this morning. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the medical dean at Stanford is prescribing tech innovation for rising healthcare costs. If we're better able to predict and prevent disease, then we'll be better able to prevent the consequences of disease once it advances. And I'm really excited about the way technology can transform that. Dr. Lloyd Miner is next. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. 
From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! We're back, and so is Becky. She made her way back to the Times Square studio. Up and Andrew, cute. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Here with us now is the one and only Mohamed Alarian, Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz. Great to see you, sir. Good morning. Rising health care costs remain a top issue for 2020 voters. And Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All plan will be front and center at Wednesday night's Democratic presidential debate in Atlanta for a closer look at the future of health care. Let's welcome Dr. Lloyd Minor, Dean of Stanford Medical School. It's great to have you in uh, this morning. We want to we want to play along and, and prevent things. That's the answer to all of this. Can, do you have a list of things we can do so that costs will go down when none of us ever get sick again? Isn't that really what we're talking about? Isn't that the best thing to try to do? Maybe technology can help us. Absolutely. Well, one of the fundamental problems with cost and with outcomes in the U.S. healthcare delivery system today is that most, in fact, almost entirely our focus is on after-the-fact care. It's right. on reactive care. If we're better able to predict and prevent disease, and we have the science and technology that should enable us to do that, if we're better able to predict and prevent disease, then we'll be better able to prevent the consequences of disease once it advances. And I'm really excited about the way technology can transform that. There's a lot we're doing at Stanford in that arena and a lot that's being done elsewhere as well. Well, I know you spent a lot of time on the East Coast down at, at uh, Johns Hopkins. Did, is it... Is it easier out in Palo Alto to, to develop these relationships with the right companies to, to, uh, to forge ahead in the, the convergence between technology and healthcare? Well, a couple of things. I think there's been a long tradition at Stanford of, of getting things into the world, and that involves commercialization very frequently. And the fact that the tech community is around us, and in so many ways Stanford has contributed to helping that community develop. It's more fluid to develop those relationships. We're working with Apple. We're working with various divisions of Alphabet, uh, really to lead the revolution in digital health, both with consumer-facing devices and technologies, and also with machine learning, AI-enabled analytics. And that's the way we're going to really be able to get at this cost problem and pre predicting and preventing disease. I know, disease. Doctor, you, you don't want to weigh in specifically on, on Medicare for All, necessarily. We'll, we'll litigate this over the next 11 months and probably for over the next 20 years. I don't know how long it, it'll take because I can't imagine private insurance being easy to, to take away from most people. And most people are covered that way. So I don't know what's eventually going to happen. Should that be our goal? And my question, the crux of this whole thing is, does getting rid of the profit incentive actually make it easier to control costs since you don't have to worry about profits? You don't need to make money, so it should be cheaper to deliver care. Or does the lack of the profit incentive make it impossible to contain costs because the that you, there's, there's no one watching the store watching the, the pizza. That's the ultimate question. Do you know the answer? I, I don't know the full answer, but I do know that 
uh, in a strictly fee-for-service world where we're being paid for increments of care, that in many work. cases not linked to outcomes, that's a problem, uh, whether or not you consider it a for-profit system or not-for-profit system. So the more we can move to um, value-based reimbursements, the more we can move towards evaluating outcomes and then rewarding based upon improved outcomes, the better the health of Americans will be and the better our delivery system will be. You know, Doctor, the entire time we were considering uh, Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, that seemed like what everybody was saying through that entire period of time. Here we are 10 years later. Have we gotten any better at that? Are there places where we're making progress on that front? I think we, we have... We have had fewer uninsured Americans, more insured Americans, and that, in principle, is a good thing. I, I just mean in terms of paying for outcomes or paying for preventative care versus right. paying on this fee-for-service. The number of bundled payment uh, arrangements are increasing uh, for things like joint replacement, uh, certain forms of heart surgery. Uh, could that pace be increased? Probably so. I think, though, that really the fundamental issue is twofold. One, predicting and preventing disease. And the other is getting information from all the data we have out there uh, today. You know, we've moved from paper records to electronic records, but really what we've done is to substitute or to get rid of paper filing cabinets and substitute them with electronic filing cabinets. We still haven't gotten or leveraged the information that's embedded with all, within all that data. And until we're, we do, we're not going to be able to really deliver the type of of informed improvement in healthcare delivery that we've seen in so many other sectors of the economy because they've been empowered by information. We're still really not in healthcare. Doctor, I want to go back to your excitement about we getting better at predicting and preventing. Right. And link it to a conversation we had before you came on set here during the break about a flu shot. What are the behavioral scientists telling you about not whether you're going to be able to predict and prevent, but whether you're going to be able to change our behavior Right. The consumer's behavior. So, so what does it take to match the science, what you're excited about, to the fact that human behaviors tend to lag the science? Absolutely. What are they telling you? Well, behavior is the hardest thing to change. That's one thing we all know. I do think technology has a role, and I think we're seeing the effects of technology. You know, wearables all too frequently sit on the shelf, but as it becomes easier for our health behaviors to be informed by information we get about our health, the more we're able to effectively change behavior. And let me mention a couple of examples. Um, there are several companies that have focused on this, particularly in the area of diabetes control, where we have one variable that we know is very important, that's glucose level. So if you look at companies like Livongo, Amada Health, what they're doing is they're creating communities to help people change behavior regarding diet, regarding uh, taking of medications, uh, and to better control or eliminate type 2 diabetes. Technology can play an important role in helping behavior change, uh, but that is, I think, the most complicated thing about really having an impact on the outcomes in healthcare. I wear this all the time in here, this, this IFB. He's the, you're the preeminent uh, expert on all things in her ear, are you not? You've won awards yes. and everything. He is. <laughs> yes. He is. He's won awards. For... Studying how the ear works with the balance system and hearing. Yes. Do, These things are not good for us, I don't think. Do, do you have anything for Trump derangement syndrome? You know, if, is there any, is there a drug or a, a, a question. What about headphones? Should you, do you keep headphones in your ears at all or not? I, you know, I occasionally use earbuds. I, I think the key keep is to low. keep the volume keep down. The volume now, down. there are ways we can monitor the amount of noise exposure we're getting. And I think and those you have are no really pro- you have no worries about the Bluetooth? Uh, Bluetooth near the brain? 
Well, that's a different uh, subject. That's, yeah, whether or not it's Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, I think uh, we need a lot more studies and evidence to know whether or not it's going to yeah, be a problem. Not, yeah. Ooh. All right, we've got to go. I don't know. Can we talk, <laughs> we'll talk off camera. That's, I'm interested. that's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.